we are digging into a couple-week class trying to understand what is the makeup of Christianity, or in other words, what is the different Christian denominations that exist, what does it mean, uh, what's our place in all of them, and so forth. And I want to start the way that I'm going to start each week, and hopefully it kind of makes sense when we get all, all done, is that I do want to speak very clearly over the next three weeks. I don't want to leave a lot of wiggle room of where I personally am at, and uh, so I want to speak, speak succinctly and clearly. When I think of myself and my role in a Christian denomination, my story is a little bit probably like a lot of yours. If you look at my family tree, I've got people in a variety of different directions. I have a father who serves as a Lutheran pastor. I have a mother that comes from a hardcore Baptist roots. I went to a Baptist college, and then I attended a multi-denominational seminary. So I've kind of got a variety of things that are in my background. And I just want to put on the table clearly at the very first point why at this moment today I am affiliated with the Lutheran Church. I just want to make this particularly specifically clear. And actually, it comes down to two things for me. One, it comes down to this. And we, I'm just going to be very honest. Family slash where I was at in life. That's just, I can't, I can't ignore that, that fact. just wasn't in a vacuum that I just decided one day. So my family history plays a major role in it and where that landed me in my life over the last 12 to 15 years. Theologically, the reason that I am aligned with the Lutheran Church comes down to one central teaching. The Lutherans have this thing called the Book of Concord that we might talk about in the coming weeks. It's basically a book book that contains their teachings and their understandings. And the Book of Concord is one um, document that some would consider the most important. It's called the Augsburg Confession. Back from the 1500s, it really lays out the Lutherans saying, this is what we believe, this is where we stand. I don't agree with the whole document. I agree with one central point in the document that I believe is the central point of Christianity. And here's what it says. Therefore it follows that personal faith by which an individual believes that his or her sins are remitted on account of Christ and that God is reconciled and gracious on account of Christ receives the forgiveness of sins and justifies us. Put it very simply like this. Historically, Lutherans have believed in one central tenet. That's justification by faith. That personal faith in Jesus Christ is what gives us the forgiveness of our sins. And I have believed historically Lutherans have protected that doctrine the best. That's why I've been willing to associate with them and be part of their movement. As I believe that's the central doctrine of Christianity. That if that gets moved at all, Jesus gets minimized. If our salvation does not come through faith alone in Jesus Christ, Jesus is minimized and our works are elevated or other things are elevated. And so that's why I'm a Lutheran, is that central doctrine. There's a lot in this book that I disagree with, and we might get into that in the next couple of weeks. But the central point for me is saving faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to start by looking at a Bible. If you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, I've been uh, noodling on this Bible passage for quite a while. 1 Corinthians 3. Where did all this denominational stuff begin? Why can't we all just be Christians? 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So this passage would have been written very soon, not like immediately, but soon after Jesus was ascended into heaven. So this would have been at the very beginning of the Christian church starting. And we have it right here at the beginning. What do we have? We have people in the city of Corinth that have said, hey, I'm going to follow Paul. And others have said, I'm going to follow Apollos. Well, then God intervenes and says, hold on a moment. Writing through the Apostle Paul, God says, hey, 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 hey. It's not about Paul or Apollos. They're important. And notice that. I want to emphasize that. Paul and Apollos are important because what? The seed doesn't grow without water. I think any farmer here would agree with me, right? You've got to have water for the seed. So Paul and Apollos are important. But God pretty quickly puts Paul in his place and says, hey, it's not about Paul. It's about God's building, God's field. And that's not Paul's field or Paul's building. So right away at the beginning of the church, we see people begin to, to splinter out and follow certain individuals. And God brings them right back and says, slow down a moment. Here's where it's at. Now, you could read that passage and say, that's right, Pastor. Denominations are horrible. It says it right there. Well, it's not saying denominations are horrible. It is saying, though, that if you elevate Paul or Apollos to the point where what? Jesus Christ is no longer the foundation. You have a problem because you are no longer acting as God's building, God's field of where he's at work. So again, he doesn't say get rid of Paul and Apollos. He just says make sure Paul and Apollos are in their proper place. Now let's think for a moment about Paul. Paul, I would contend, is the most important figure in the history of Christianity. He wrote, I don't know, three-quarters of the New Testament, possibly. He started the spread of Christianity. Paul was a big deal. And if God is saying about Paul, hey, it's not about Paul, then all these other servants that came after Paul, who are also are extremely important in the spread of the gospel around the world, they what? Fall in line right behind Paul of, we're just servants here to water and here to help things grow and move ahead. So that's what's been on my mind a lot lately is, the focus needs to be on building God's building, not individuals and not human uh, institutions. But humans are important because they what? Participate in the process. So that's where we're going to start, and I wanted to lay out then what's our agenda. And I wanted to kind of flame this from a, frame this from a personal perspective. What's my personal agenda? We get into conversations like this, and I know what people are thinking. Oh, boy, where is he taking us? And in the church world, the church is notorious for behind-the-back-door conversations. You know how it works, the meeting outside of the meeting. i just laying things out right here. You can know what my agenda is. My first agenda is this. We're studying this, and we're having this conversation because I want to fully embody the purposes of Jesus Christ. And here's what I start with, is that every one of us has blind spots. Every one of us has blind spots. There's no one in this room that is fully embodying the purpose of Jesus Christ. And if we went over to Africa right now and went into one of the churches there, I tell you what, they would have blind spots as well. 
certain cultural things that have caused them to believe certain things that aren't exactly in line with Jesus Christ. Everybody has got blind spots, and so I want to open us up to the full teaching and try and help us spread ourselves. My second purpose is this. I want to give King of Glory understanding so that we can determine how to move forward with faithfulness to Jesus and intentional intentionality in fulfilling our mission. I don't want us just to continue to be someone or do something. Why? Because we've always done it that way. I want us to answer the question with intentionality. We're doing this because X or Y. And so I believe education is a really important piece of that puzzle, is it gives us an understanding so we can make an intentional decision of who we align ourselves with and what kind of Christian uh, entity, you could say, we want to be. So that's my agenda right there, is I want to get the full perspective of Jesus, and I want to help us move forward with intentionality. So the class agenda is pretty simple. Today, we're going to do, we're going to lay out Christianity. Just kind of give you a basic overview. How is Christianity laid out? Might get kind of boring for some of you, but it's important to give you a full perspective and keep us broad thinking. Then we're going to look at the different teachings. So that's where it gets into some specifics about what are the differences between all the different entities in Christianity. We're going to look at King of Glory's core teachings. How does that line up with the different teachings that we looked at? And then I'm going to propose kind of a pathway forward. How do we move, move forward around this conversation? So let's get started and do a five-minute commercial slash here is a full seminary in five minutes, the breakdown of Christianity, and this is what Christianity looks like. Christianity started 22,000 years ago, kind of however you want to look at the numbers, at the birth of Jesus Christ. Before that, our roots were in the nation of Israel, the faith of Judaism. Jesus comes through Judaism, comes through the nation of Israel. So I'm looking at the point of Jesus forward. Up here, I've got what's called the apostolic church. If we were to go one step back, one step back would be Israel. From Israel comes Jesus. From Jesus comes what's called the apostolic church. Some call it the primitive church. It's the first church right after Jesus ascended into heaven. How did Christianity organize itself? It was organized basically by the apostles, the 12 plus Paul, depending on how you count things, 12 plus Paul kind of going out and spreading Christianity. It was the apostolic church. There wasn't really breakdowns according to that. That happened for the first couple hundreds of years, 300 years probably around there. Christianity at that time, remember this is an important piece, Christianity was under pressure. The government did not want Christianity. Remember what they said to the apostles, do not say the name of Jesus Christ. If you remember that from Acts chapter 5 or 6, and what does Peter said? He says, hey, I can obey man, but when man tells me to disobey God, I can no longer obey man. So the government did not want Christianity to tell them, don't see the name, say the name of Jesus Christ. Well, then what happens is around the year 300, somewhere maybe 350 in that area, Rome formally endorses or formally allows Christianity. This is when things really begin to shape and, and take different things. So really around that time is when the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, starts. Now, this is Richard McCorris' perspective. Talk to a Roman Catholic, they're going to have a different perspective. They're going to say, whoa, 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 that line should be straight, not at an angle. Because the, for them, the Roman Catholic Church begins with Peter. So it would just be right, right on. So I'm looking at it from a little different perspective of when it really became formal. Also around that time then became what we would label today as the Orthodox Church. 
Orthodox means right belief or right way of worship. And so today we label that the Eastern Orthodox. So around 300, you really had two segments. You had Western Christianity, and this is really geographic in the Roman Empire. The Western half of the empire, and you had the Eastern half. And they were split politically, they were split ethnically, but then they also split on a couple of theological pieces. Now, this is stuff some of you maybe don't care about at all, but it's important to recognize that a lot of their split was geographical and political. That was in play a lot of kind of how the Roman Empire was working and stuff. But theologically, they had a couple of main splints. The first splint was this. In the Nicene Creed, not sure if you're familiar at all with the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was uh, basically a, a document put together by the early Christians to help fight off some bad teaching. In the Nicene Creed, there's a statement in there that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Well, at some point, the Catholic Church, the Western half, changed the Nicene Creed, just a tweak, and they said, proceeds from the Father and the Son. At that point, the Western Church and the Eastern Church basically officially split, because the Eastern Church taught that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, not from the Son. So we're not going to get into the details of that, but that was kind of the laying the groundwork for what happened. So around the year 1054 A.D., you kind of have the official split between the Catholic and the Orthodox, the Western and the Eastern Church. Today, the Eastern Church is probably the second largest Christian segment in the world. They're still very active, even here in Sioux Falls. We have some Eastern Orthodox congregations. The Catholic, Roman Catholic, is the largest Christian body in, in the world today. Well, let's fast forward a couple years, hundreds of years. So the Catholic Church is beginning in the year 1500s, specifically the year 1517, which means this year is actually the 500-year anniversary. Maybe some of you have seen that. What starts to happen is the Catholic Church begins to experience what some have labeled the Reformation. So in the year 1517, uh, you have a guy named Martin Luther uh, stands up and says, hey, there's some teachings by the Catholic Church just simply disagree with. A lot of it was based around the forgiveness of sins. The central issue was justification by faith. And so Martin Luther uh, famously hangs what's called the 95 Thesis, saying, saying we're unwilling to negotiate on these things. So from 1517 starts a movement called Lutheranism. At the exact same time and in different places, there's other people like Martin Luther that are starting to have these stirrings. And so during the Reformation, the Catholic Church really begins to experience um, not necessarily a splinter because the Catholic Church never really splints in multiple directions, but it's really a break off in a variety of ways. So first you have Lutheran, and then you have Presbyterian Reformed. These are really together, most well known from a guy named John Calvin. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but Lutheran and, Luther and Calvin, you could say, were the biggest reformers of their, their time. Now, there's something very important to know. Luther, you could say, was a monk, was, was practicing the Christian faith in that way. John Calvin was an attorney. And there's a big difference between the two. John Calvin, as an attorney, always worked out things logically. So, for example, he would say, Jesus is this, so his next statement would be there, therefore, da 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 and then, therefore, da 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 So, in the Reformed Presbyterian world, what you have is, you've, where's my book? You've got this type of book 
what the Lutherans call the Book of Concord in the Reform world. I don't know how many of these they have. They've got a bundle of them called the Institutes that are written by John Calvin that really lay things out in specificity, just working down. You can see the difference between a lawyer and a, and a monk. So again, there's some occupational ways of thinking that goes into driving the conversation. At the same time, then, you've got what's called the Anglican movement that starts. Now, in each of these instances, Lutheran, Presbyterian, slash Reformed, and Anglican, you've got different issues at play. So Luther starts it all, but then Calvin says, hey, you know what? Luther didn't go far enough with this piece over here, the sovereignty of God. Um, then the Anglicans can come back around and say, hey, we like some pieces of the traditional aspects of Roman Catholicism, but we like some more personal piety things where the, it's more of a personal relationship with God, some different things like that. So then they kind of start their own wing. Now, depending upon which group you're talking to, each of these groups might say they come differently. So, for example, some might say the Anglicans come from the Lutherans. But if you say an Anglican, it's going to say, whoa, whoa, we didn't come from the Lutherans. We, we came from the Roman Catholic Church. So, again, they all kind of have their own angle of where they came from. And then fourth at this time, you've got what's called the free churches. Now, here's where there's a big difference to understand. The first three, Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican, all have serious politics at play. What I mean by that is it becomes a very geographical movement. So if you go to Minnesota, what do you usually run into? A Lutheran. Well, why? Because Minnesotans come from a similar place in Europe where Lutheranism was really thriving and growing. That's not a bad thing. That's not a good thing. That's just reality. So Lutheran, Presbyterian, slash Reformed, and Anglican were driven a lot by politics and by geography and things like that. So there's very much, to put it in very harsh terms maybe, the government and the church were in bed together when it came to Lutheranism, Reform, and, and Anglican. It's just the reality and the way it, way, it, way it worked. Now, from that came some other people, what some might call some real freewheelers in the free church world that said, whoa, whoa, slow down here. Martin Luther has not gone far enough. First and foremost, the biggest issue they had was Martin Luther has not gone far enough on baptism. So, hey, someone needs to be baptized after a personal conversion experience as an adult. And said, so basically, Reform and Lutheran were out for them because they've all continued the practice of infant baptism. So the preacher says, this is, un that's not, you can't continue this practice. So that was a big piece of it. The second piece of it was this. They say, hey, you got to separate completely from the government. And so a lot of times in the free church movement, what you had is you had people actually leave and go out and start small societies outside of the world. They kind of said, we've got to be away from the world. The worldly influence is, is affecting our doctrine and our theology. So those were two major driving practices. So from the free church movement then, you've got a bunch of things that come up. Anabaptist, Baptist, Methodist, the holiness slash Pentecostal movement. So all of these groups here basically were really emphasizing personal ownership of the faith and also were emphasizing kind of this separation from the world, personal holiness. And then from there, we could really break it down and it can go a bundle of different directions. I'm missing, I don't know how many. There's a ton. Some people would probably be offended that I don't have, for example, the Moravian church. 
I don't have up here. But there's all sorts of different groups that I've, I've left off. But this is the main breakdown. If you had to look at our family tree right now, this is it. You can trace most groups that are in Sioux Falls back through one of these trees. So that's kind of the breakdown of Christianity currently. So let's ask the question then, what is a denomination? And this is the Richard McCorris definition. A denomination is a human institution established for people who hold to similar teachings to practice their faith. So what I put on the screen before this, these groups are all what I would call um, big cloud, big ticket denominational things. Now within each of these big ticket groups, you've got specific denominations within each. So we're not going to go through each one. We'd nev never get done. Uh, so let me just break it down for an example. So we just take Lutheran. Within the overarching cloud of Lutheranism, I haven't even got them all up here, You've got some big players, North American Lutheran Church, who we're affiliated with, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, Wisconsin Synod, Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ, Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. That's just a couple that we'd be familiar with here. That's not labeling all across the world. So when I say denomination, what I'm really referring to is one of these groups, ELCIC, Wisconsin, da-da-da. And if we took each of these things, Baptist, Methodist, Anabaptist, Reformed, and we broke them down, we'd have the exact same thing on the next slide. I could replace Lutheran with Reformed, and I could have a bunch of things there. I could replace Lutheran with Baptist, and I won't have enough slides to break up how many different Baptists there are. There's a joke. You get two Baptists in the same room, you leave with two different denominations. And so, um, so when I say denomination, that's a human institution. And this is really important from my perspective. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was not started by God. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is not the church. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is human beings that came together and said, hey, you know what? We believe this, about, that the Lutheran teaching is correct, so we need to put human organization in place to what? Protect the teaching. That's one of the driving purposes of a denomination. So if you believe Lutheranism is the correct articulation of the gospel, what you want to do is you want to protect what? The teaching so that your children and your grandchildren hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do you do? You put processes in place that protect the teaching so that Jesus is articulated to the coming generations. So then human beings gather together and say, hey, we agree on this and this. Let's start a group together that can protect the proclamation. Now, this is where we differ from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is an institution from humans. God did not institute the Roman Catholic Church. This would be a major split between a priest and myself, for example. Because a priest would say, they are the church. God started that that's God's vehicle is the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that's fundamentally wrong, is that the church is where Jesus Christ is proclaimed and the sacraments are ordinances, baptism and communion are administered. It might be anywhere and it might not come under the umbrella of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's still the church. Do I believe that there's Christians within the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely. I know a bundle of Catholics who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We've got some fundamental differences on things, but that doesn't mean we're not all Christians. 
So again, a denomination is a human institution of human beings coming together saying, hey, this is the way we understand Christianity. Let's set some processes up that allow us to practice Christianity this way. And it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're under pressure, right? So what happens is usually this. People start attacking certain teachings. And if you feel pressure, what do you want? You want support. You want someone to be able to stand with that's going to say, hey, let's continue on this path even when it gets rough. So then what does a denomination do? A denomination says, these are our teachings that we want to protect. So now what we need to do is we need to train up pastors who what? Teach these teachings that we've protected. So the human institution then develops training for their pastors to teach the doctrine that they've decided to protect. There's nothing wrong with denominations at all. It makes a lot of logical sense. The challenge becomes is when the denominations have the teachings that they protect may end up actually being walls to people receiving the teaching. Or the teaching that they are protecting isn't the whole picture. It's only a small portion of it. So again, that's what really comes down to personal opinion of whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. But I would contend that all of us are in agreement on one thing this morning. I would hope so, that this is Christianity right here, this whole, this whole tree here. If you believe, for example, that, that Lutheran is, is right, and outside of Lutheran, there, there's nothing else, we're just, we're on completely different wavelength. There's not even anywhere to start the conversation. Is that this whole picture is, is Christianity, that reform is Christian, Lutheran is Christian, Baptist is Christian, Methodist is, is Christian. We've got some specific differences, but we're all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we got all these denominations. What are the differences? Why do we got so many differences? I just want to lay out a couple of the key ones from a high level, and next week is when we're going to really dig in then and try and understand what are these differences. The first thing that's a really big difference in a lot of them is church governance. What I mean by that is, how is a church body set up and make decisions? So, for example, a big split is some of the groups believe that the Bible clearly lays out how a church is supposed to be set up. That in the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it says appoint elders and, and deacons and deaconesses, and this is what they're supposed to do. So a church is established in that manner, and that's the decision-making process. Other churches that flow from the Roman Catholic setup believe that you're not necessarily congregational driven. What I mean by that is this. You don't just have a group of people in your church that make decisions. You've got people outside of your church like a bishop that have authority over you. So it was one of the big splits in the Reformation is people said, whoa, 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 what's some bishop deciding what we believe? We've got the Word of God right here. That's our source of authority and the elders that get appointed in our group. So how a church governs itself is a big difference. Sacrament slash ordinance is a, probably the driving most visual difference. Sacrament is baptism, communion, depending on which church body you're in. Sometimes it's washing feet is a sacrament in some places. So is, is baptism and communion a, a sacrament or an ordinance? And we'll get into that next week a little bit. But this is a major difference. And this is maybe the most visual difference, obviously, baptism being the most visual in that you're baptizing an infant or you're baptizing an adult. So that's, there's major differences on that line. Scripture, how people view the Bible. 
So some groups view the Bible as the ultimate authority. Other people view the Bible in conjunction with reason and tradition as the ultimate authority. So you kind of have a three-legged stool. Other people view the Bible as authoritative, however the church fathers or your church governance structure, their interpretation of the Bible is the ultimate authority. So really you've got a couple of different ways to view the Bible. One is the local interpretation is authoritative because everybody has an interpretation of the Bible. When you read it, you don't, it doesn't just, you've got to interpret it. So either the local body is interpreting it and they're the authority, the bishops or others outside of your church are the authority, how they interpret it, is it? Or tradition, how it's historically been interpreted, is your guiding authority, how you understand the Bible. Uh, there's a big difference between denominations on the role of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, some denominations believe that when the Bible was um, canonized, which means it was finalized, everybody agreed on that these are the one books that are allowed in, this is a done deal. After that point, the Holy Spirit um, ceased to work in different ways, like miraculous events, for example, events, prophecy, tongues, some things like that. So the Holy Spirit, they're called cessationists, and uh, there's a breaking point there in a variety of different denominations. Other denominations believe that you have to have a baptism in the Holy Spirit, which means that there's really a conversion moment when you didn't have the Holy Spirit, and then you did, and there's something that happens in your life that's evidence of that. So, for example, you might speak in tongues, or you might give a word of knowledge. That's evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we might label this as charismatic, non-charismatic. There's, there's differences between the understanding of the Holy Spirit. And then there's big differences, big, big differences between free will, which I've labeled as personal decision, experience, conversion. So when I say free will, I'm not talking here at all. I want to be really clear about this. When I say free will, I'm not talking about can I choose where I'm going to go eat lunch, okay? No, we're not. Yes, you can choose where you're going to go eat lunch today. You are not on strings. God has not predetermined where you're going to have lunch today. You're just acting that out. And pretty much, there's pretty much agreement on that. It gets misconstrued sometimes by people down the line, but Calvin, Luther are all pretty much in agreement on that. Free will, personal decision means this. Do I have the ability in myself to say, Jesus, I believe in you? Or do I have the ability to say, Jesus, I'm going to reject you? Do I have the complete freedom? So that would be personal decision. There's groups that say, you've got complete free decision to do that. There were other groups, Lutherans, Reformed, Presbyterian, that said, whoa, whoa, you do not have free will. What I mean by that is this. You cannot, by your own natural ability, say, Jesus, I believe in you. It can only happen when God gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this gets really complicated really fast. So, for example, in the Lutheran teaching, depending on which hymnal you read, a lot of people believe the Holy Spirit is given at baptism. And then at some point, because you have the Holy Spirit, you're able to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Other people believe, more in a Calvin understanding, is that when God's Word is proclaimed, what happens is, is that the Spirit of God is taking God's Word and comes alongside of it and gives somebody the ability to say, yes, Jesus. 
And then the free will people believe that they have that option, and when they make that choice, the Holy Spirit enters into their life and things are changed. Now, I'm, there's a bundle of gray in all of that. But when I say personal decision slash experience slash conversion, that's what I mean, is that there's major differences on this front. And even in our own church, there are major differences on this, on this front right here for, for just straightforward and honest again. So, free will, personal decision. So, if you look at Methodism, for example, and Baptist, this is one of the reasons that they said, hey, Lutheranism reformed. They didn't go far enough. So, Baptists would be offended this morning that I have them in the family tree coming out of Catholicism. Whenever Baptists draw the, draw the family tree, and I'll just show you this real quick. Whenever Baptists draw the family tree, what they would do is they'd take a dotted line from themselves, Baptist or Anabaptist, back to the apostolic church because they want nothing to do with the Catholic, Catholic Church, but that's just not reality. So the final piece that's, that there is vast differences on is the issue of worship, is denominations are differentiated a lot by how they worship. So a lot of this comes back again to Calvin and Luther. When they broke apart from the Catholic Church, Luther basically kept intact, for the most part, worship from the Catholic perspective. Luther's perspective was this. Hey, if the Bible says don't do it, we can do it. And the Bible doesn't give clear direction exactly on how we should worship each Sunday. Calvin said this. If the Bible doesn't say do it, we don't do it. Does that make sense? So, the example, the Bible would say, preach the word, sing psalms, and pray. So, a Calvinist might say, that's our worship service. So in a Calvin church, depending on how strict it is, you might not have, ever have any special music because they say what? Hey, it doesn't say do it. In the Lutheran church or Catholic church, you might have special music. Why? Because it says, well, we've got great freedom. So there's a, there was a difference there. And then you bring in the free church movement, what happens? They're like, oh, you people have not gone far enough. You've got to get rid of this tradition and this liturgy because guess what? That's what's driving the problem. And so the free church really kicked back by saying, you remember your problem with justification and forgiveness of sins? If you want to change the problem, you've got to change that which ingraining the problem, which they contended was liturgy. So a much more free um, movement of not having to follow a set pattern. So again, worship, there's a variety of different things. One final example of how you see this play out is this. In a Baptist church, the pulpit is in the middle of the room. In a traditional Lutheran church, a Catholic church, Methodist church, you've got almost two things. You've got the pulpit over on one side, and then you've got over here, you've got something called a lectern. And then in the center, you've got the communion table. So the Eucharist, another name for communion, is center of the worship experience. In the Reformed Baptist world, the Word of God is the center of the worship experience. Right or wrong, we could debate that all day long, but that's kind of the breakup of how it, how it looks. So that's a real quick overview of what does Christianity look like today. As there's a bundle of different denominations, those denominations are really separated by some of these key issues right here. Next week, we're going to get into what are these key issues, uh, what's the understanding of them, and so forth. So what's our game plan? First is this. Questions, want to give you the opportunity to ask questions. During the week, starting tomorrow, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions online. So 
So as you're reflecting and you're thinking, I really want to know this about denominationalism or what the different denominations do, just submit that question online and I'll make sure to try and answer that question in the, in the class or online as well. So, so feel free to do that. Then I want to give you one homework assignment for this next week. And I know most of you aren't going to do it, but I'm going to give it to you anyhow. I think this would actually be one of the healthiest things that you could do. Here's what I want you to do. Grab a blank piece of paper. On that blank piece of paper, I want you to write down what are your non-negotiables. What are the Christian teachings you're unwilling to budge on? Not only these are I'm unwilling to budge on, I'm unwilling to participate where these aren't a part of it or there's something that's in opposition to it. This is absolutely vital to do personally because we spend so much time as individuals in this emotional uproar a lot, fighting, and sometimes we don't even know what we're fighting about. Because sometimes we've got perceptions that we think of things that are important, but then when we really sit down and look at it, maybe it's not that important. But then there's other things that others are like, hey, this is it. You don't are like, eh. but maybe you've never sat down and thought, you know what? That is a non-negotiable. So you yourself, you need to decide what are the non-negotiables. I want you to do this. I don't want you to go home and go on the church website and copy the core teachings. Write down yourself. What's non-negotiable? You might only have one thing on there, and that might be, I don't know, I guess I don't know what that would be if there was only one thing. You might have five things on there, ten things. I don't know. You might have something on there that says this. Communion has to be served with wine. That's just fine if that's a non-negotiable. I can make that argument from Scripture. That's just fine. Maybe your non-negotiable is, you know what? Free will. I, I just cannot be part of Whatever it might be, what is non-negotiable for you in your Christian understanding? Because then that what? Gives you freedom. You know where you should put your energy. Don't put your energy in fighting about stuff you're unwilling to change, but go where you have an open hand and know you can interact and live in that realm. So that's your homework assignment this next week. I'm not going to give you any hints of what to write down or whatever. Just go and write down your non-negotiables. Don't copy the Bible word for word, the whole book. That will take you all week. But uh, one page, do that. So we've got about two minutes here. Does anybody have a question of something I've covered today? Historical question or anything like that. Luther and Calvin, John asked, were they in conversation? Great question. There was a lot of conversation. So, for example, maybe not them individually, but the initial movements had lots of conversation. So they would have things, I can't remember the exact word they would use, but they'd have meetings where they would see if they could come to agreement on different things. And there's all sorts of stories about how they had a 10-hour meeting and they got to the final point. So, for example, one of the famous ones is Luther and Calvin or whatever their, their representatives were meeting about communion. They're back and forth about thing, and Luther finally just says, it says is, this is my body, and just drew a line on the table and said, I'm not changing, and then they walked away, but that's, I don't know how true that is, but there was lots of meetings. Great question.
great question. Jim asked if churches focus on Martin Luther more than Christ sometimes. Got to go only. I can only preside my personal perspective on this. My answer would be yes with a little bit of a hitch. The yes is, their argument would be this, is that Martin Luther gave the correct interpretation of scriptures. Therefore, focusing on Martin Luther is focusing on Jesus Christ. I, I can understand that argument. <clears throat> the reason I disagree with that position is this, is I believe it's really hard to believe that one person throughout history had the perfect understanding of Jesus Christ, especially when you, there's certain things about Luther that everybody agrees were wrong. So, for example, his understanding of Jews and maybe an anti-Semite Semite position is it's hard for me to believe he had the exact correct interpretation, but that could definitely be perceived. Yes? Christian and zero non-negotiables. I would say no. I, I, for example, I'll give you one non-negotiable. I'm breaking my rule of helping you, you out. <laughs> non-negotiable, for example, is salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Because there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. I can negotiate on whether um, there's universalism, that at the end of day, everybody is saved through Christ. But I will not negotiate, and I would contend from the Bible specifically, is that you can't be a Christian if you don't believe that it's only through Jesus that you get to the creator of the universe, God. Great question. There's others. I won't go share them. Gary, last question, Gary. Gary asks, for the Great Commission, has the, the Word of God been shared out, <clears throat> outside of denomination? Uh, Fifty years ago, I would have said no, has not been shared outside of denomination. Now you can pretty boldly say yes. So there's a plethora of mission work now, especially in what I call the 1040 window, where the least last people groups to be reached is really outside of denominations. But initially, the one group that deserves the most thing is Southern Baptists. The gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't care if you disagree with Baptist, Lutheran, whatever, the gospel of Jesus Christ would not be to different places around the world if it was not for the Southern Baptist denomination.